Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld, And today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, The Triumph of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, as we look at a message titled, The Open Door with Dr. John Newfeld. A number of years ago, a movie entitled Dead Poets Society, starring Robin Williams, resurrected an obscure Latin phrase, carpe diem. The story is about an English teacher and his students in an elite boarding school for males. In the movie, the teacher's name is John Keating, and his task is to help the young men in the class make their lives extraordinary while they can. At one moment in time, he shows them pictures of classmates from times gone by and helps them to understand that all those in the picture have long since died. Their day was gone. But this day was the moment for these young men. Carpe diem, he says. Seize the day. Make your lives extraordinary. Now, of course, it's good counsel. But, of course, life can appear fickle. Not everyone can seize the day. The 15-year-old with a terminal illness can't. The day has seized him. The person who's born into poverty has no access to schooling and is offered no economic system that he or she can seize. Well, he or she has no carpe diem. But God is sovereign, and when he acts, well, life is no longer fickle, but rather it's ordered by him. And so when in Revelation 3, verse 8, Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia that he has set before them an open door that no one is able to shut, We're left with a picture of an opportunity to see something that will not be denied the Church of Philadelphia. They can seize the day. We've been studying the seven churches of the book of Revelation, and today we're coming to the second last of these churches. As we will see, this church and the church in Smyrna are the only two of the seven which receive no rebuke from Jesus, but only praise and encouragement. So what do we know about the ancient Asian city of Philadelphia? Well, for one, we do know that of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation, this was the youngest city of the seven. We know that the main temple in the city was dedicated to the Roman god Dionysus. We also know that the city was prone to earthquakes so that many of the citizens refused to live within the walls of the city, preferring rather to live around the city so as to minimize personal injury at the time of an earthquake. We also know that the Roman government provided the funds to help repair the damage of the earthquakes that happened in the city. You know, all this gave the impression of living on the edge. And because of this, Philadelphia felt a great debt to Rome and, like the other cities of the region, were committed to the worship of the emperor of Rome. But for Christians living at Philadelphia, the great danger was neither earthquakes nor the emperor cult. The aggressive nature of the Jewish community was the greatest danger they faced. Indeed, it would be fair to say that, like Smyrna, the Jewish synagogue was overtly hostile to the Christian church. And it is this connection between the openly hostile Jewish community in both cities, in in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, that this is of some note. We know that 11 believers from the church in Philadelphia were martyred in the city of Smyrna. And so that was their reality. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, 
Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, as with all the other churches, Jesus begins by identifying himself in a way that by now is beginning to sound familiar. He wants the church in Philadelphia to concentrate on some of his attributes, attributes that will help them seize the moment. He calls himself the Holy One and the True One. In calling himself holy, he's drawing attention to the fact that he is without sin, that he is pure and undefiled. By calling himself the True One, he's drawing attention to the fact that he both speaks only what is true and that he embodies the truth. See, what's being communicated to the believers in Philadelphia is that they need to concentrate on the fact that they can trust Jesus entirely. Yes, he is calling them to an open door that may well involve greater hostility from the Jewish synagogue, but they need not fear. He who has opened a door for them is entirely trustworthy. And with that, Jesus adds one more attribute. He has the key of David. The key of David is the key to the kingdom of the Messiah. It's not the Jewish synagogue that will inherit the promises of God in the Old Testament. It is Jesus who holds that key. They need to trust God, that the future promises of God belong to Jesus and to his people. The one who is holy and cannot lie, the one who speaks only what is truth, reminds them to trust him. And with those words, Jesus encourages the church with but one sentence, I know your works. I mean, nothing further is required. In Sardis, the works of that church are found incomplete, but no mention of the shortcomings of their works are mentioned in Philadelphia. That, of course, doesn't mean that they are perfect, so what does it mean? You know, in Sardis, we learned that the church was failing to win the lost, and so even though they did many other things, Having left the gospel proclamation undone, their works are incomplete. But that's not the case in Philadelphia. According to verse 8, Jesus says, You have not denied my name. And then, with no further mention of what they've done well, Jesus now turns to the specific promises that are to be applied to that church. You know, the promise is simple. Jesus has opened for them a unique door, and no one but no one will be able to close what he has opened. You know, at this point, let me draw your attention to the grammar of that statement. You know, I'm using the English Standard Version, and it translates the promise from verse 8, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. The Greek word for which is the very short word hati. Now, it's also quite possible to translate that same little word as that instead of which. And so we could read the verse to say, I have set before you an open door that no one is able to shut. 
See, in this case, our attention is drawn not just to the fact that no one can shut the door, but this is the kind of a door that is an unshuttable door. It has no shutting mechanism the way that other doors have. I mean, think of it this way. All of us know of opportunities that sometimes come our way and of people and circumstances that might come along to close the door to opportunities. But, says Jesus, this opportunity is not that kind of an opportunity. This opportunity has no closing mechanism. Neither the Jews nor the Romans can shut the door because it is not that kind of a door. See, immediately, the hearts of the faithful in this church must have just skipped a beat. I mean, what is this thing? What's this opportunity that Christ, the true one, has gifted them with? It must have been something unique. See, the reason I say that is that we might contrast this, for instance, with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9. There he said, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. I think if I read Paul rightly, he sees an opportunity that he must aggressively seize before his opponents shut the door. Or notice Colossians 4, verse 3. Paul asked the Colossian church to pray to God that he may open a door for him there. Up till now, he says the door has been shut. Indeed, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul even says he wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul rightly saw sometimes doors opening and sometimes doors were shutting. He prayed for more open doors, and he prayed to be able to recognize when a door was open, even if it was only open for a short period of time. But something remarkable had happened to the church in Philadelphia. A unique door was presented to them, an unshuttable door. As we're going to see, it's the door to very fruitful evangelism. To a church that had showed nothing but faithfulness in evangelism, I can only imagine the reaction that they must have had when this letter was read to them. What is it that Christ has promised to them? Carpe diem, seize the moment. Back to the Bible, Canada, Israel experience is scheduled to return May of 2018. Back by popular demand, we return to the promised land, accompanied by Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled with visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David's City, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, the Garden of Gethsemane, and so many others, and several evenings in fellowship, teaching, laughter, worship, and a special musical concert. Every detail is worked out for the best Israel experience you could imagine. Check out the details at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We'll also be offering a Jordan extension for those interested. So register soon. And an added reminder that all costs related to Back to the Bible Canada vacation and tour events are met by the participants. And no ministry funds are used for these purposes. In verse 8, Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have but a little power. See, that must mean that the church was most likely economically poor and that it was also not influential in that city. You might remember that when Paul was writing the Corinthian Christians, he reminded them that not many of them were wise according to worldly standards and not many were of noble birth. The same must have been true in Philadelphia. 
I suspect that there were no politicians among them, no influential business leaders, no philosophers, no educational leaders. You know, it might even have been that the church in Philadelphia thought themselves to be of no account at all. You know, we're going to contrast that to the church in Laodicea, who openly said, we're rich. No one among the Philadelphian Christians said that. But then remembering the hostility of the Jewish community, Jesus tells these believers something else that must have astonished them. Reading verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, in order to understand this language, please notice that there are several ways in the Bible for understanding the title Jew. You know, one can understand the term merely as a racial term, and if this is how we understand the term, well, then quite clearly, these people were genuinely Jews. But do you remember how Paul expressed the matter in Romans 2.28? See, there he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. He meant that the true nature of Israel was a heart that's yielded to God. And that's the sense here. These people may be physical descendants of Abraham, but they're not Jews in the sense that they have inherited the promises of God. Now, having said that, Jesus now tells this weak and struggling and seemingly insignificant church that he will make those in the synagogue of Satan bow down before their feet. See, what's especially fascinating about that statement is that it mirrors something that's said in the Old Testament regarding Israel. See, let me read to you two passages, both from the book of Isaiah. The first one comes from Isaiah 49, verses 22 and 23, and it contains a promise regarding the last days, and it's made towards Israel. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers." With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. See, God was during the time of Isaiah promising beleaguered Israel that one day in the end times, their enemies would come and bow down before them. Now, the second quote comes from Isaiah 60 verse 14. There we read, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. See, I hope you see what's going on. In the book of Revelation, the situation is reversed. The Jews who denied the gospel will come down bowing before the Gentile believers who had embraced the God of Israel and accepted his Messiah. The promises made to Israel were going to be applied to the church of Jesus. See, what has happened is what Paul spoke of in Romans 11, that the Gentiles, that is, the wild olive tree, was grafted into the vine of Israel, and the natural branches, Israel was broken off through unbelief. See, in this case, the promises of Isaiah are being granted to the church, and most specifically, to the persecuted Christians in Philadelphia. Now, in the case of Romans 11, Paul holds out hope that the natural branches will one day be grafted back in, and Paul will even proclaim a day coming when all Israel will be saved, referring to a turning to God of the Jewish people. 
And in that sense, I can't help but wonder about the promise in Revelation that the Jews would come and bow down before the feet of the church in Philadelphia. See, in Isaiah, the Gentiles come and bow before Israel, but in the process, the Gentiles seek to be converted to Israel's God. And I think that's precisely what Jesus has in mind for the church in Philadelphia, that the church itself would be a part of the package that calls Israel back to her God. I hope you catch that. Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, don't be overwhelmed if in the present moment men reject you for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, the only one who is holy and true, has promised that in the day to come, the situation is going to be reversed. And it is this that makes sense of verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Now, I know that some of us want to use this verse as a promise that the church as a whole is going to be rescued from the Great Tribulation. But however you feel about the question of the rapture, please understand that this is not what this verse is about. This verse is directed specifically at the beleaguered church in Philadelphia, and Jesus is not promising them that they're going to escape tribulation or persecution or even death from the enemies of the gospel. How could he promise that, since tribulation and persecution and even death is what they're already experiencing? Instead, Jesus is referring to something else. The hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world in the book of Revelation is the condemnation of the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, the great prostitute Babylon, and all who have not repented and who continue to follow the beast in the ways of this condemned world. The hour of trial coming on the world is the last judgment. And says Jesus, when the nations are judged and condemned for their sins, when the great trial comes upon the whole world, you're going to be spared. You will not be condemned with this world. And ultimately, every single Christian reading these words should understand that this is the issue that's before all of us. See, we must choose whether we wish to be safe in the present hour or whether we wish to be safe in the last hour. And I don't think we can have it both ways. We're either going to look at the cities of this world or we're going to look ahead to the celestial city whose maker and builder is God. We will decide which citizenship we want the kingdoms of this world or the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, we all must decide which world we wish to belong to. Jesus said that to seek friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. And so for all believers, the real issue is always this. Can Jesus be trusted? If he is the holy and true one, then we can content ourselves that our present beleaguered state will surely be reversed even to our enemies who persecute us today. It is not we, but they who are in mortal danger. And it is for this reason that Jesus tells his church, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Don't let those who intimidate you make you give up what is yours. And with that in verse 11 come the words that will be repeated at the end of the book of Revelation. I am coming soon. And without the promise, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. See, when we come to the end of Revelation, we're presented with the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, and we're told that there is no temple in the celestial city. 
But here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that the people of God who have been faithful through trial are the real temple of God. I know, the language is the language of symbolism. In the time of Solomon, God's glory filled the temple. And in the last days, God's glory fills his people. And then comes another promise. Never, says Jesus, will they ever go out of the presence of his glory and of the new heavens and the new earth. I want us, therefore, to come back to the language of a door that no one can shut, or as I have stated it, an unshuttable door. The door is the door to evangelism and missions. The door is the door to make Christ known to this world. The reason this door cannot be shut is that the final end-time promises that Jesus makes to his people are true. We have been liberated from loving this world to loving him and counting on his promises to us. We have been liberated from our attachment to that which is soon passing away, and we have staked our claim on that which will never end. And for that reason, there is always an open door for gospel proclamation, for we have not loved our lives even unto death. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John, thanks so much for this this message, this reminder of where we ought to exist But what would you say to those who seem to be living with one foot in both worlds? Well, I know that there's an illusion that many of us have that we really can live in both worlds. Um, and, and, And I think that needs to be addressed first. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And I think we need to drink deeply of that. We have to come to terms with the fact that we live in a fallen world. And in many ways, of course, we live in a condemned world. And so we need to take our stand and say, no matter what the earth offers me or what the world offers me, when it takes it away, which it will, um, it will be no loss at all because I never owned it in the first place. What I own, where my ownership is staked, is in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what gives Christians this this amazing courage that they have at all times. So when we are threatened, either by magistrates or by any other group of people, uh, you know, there is really no threat against us at all because, indeed, we've already lost all things to the gospel. So I guess that's my word to those who want to have, you know, a foothold in this world. You will never be able to live for Christ if you have that attitude. You must abandon it. Thanks so much, John, for a great message. And join us again tomorrow for more Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Let me share with you a few comments from our listeners. This is one of the most insightful and fulfilling studies I have ever heard in my life. Another, I'm a pastor, and I've been listening to Back to the Bible podcast since the fall. I'm very thankful to be able to listen to the daily podcast and have my own life and ministry enriched with excellent teaching that Dr. Neufeld provides. And thank you at Back to the Bible for all the amazing work you do. You've helped my walk more than you'll ever know. What a great encouragement. And it reminds us to say thank you. Your prayers and financial support, your commitment, makes all our Bible teaching ministries possible and available to anyone thirsting to hear. Please continue to partner with us. Together, lives are being encouraged 
and changed. Offer your generous support today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.